Good afternoon, and welcome to our BMI Sunday Online Fellowship. Thank you for joining us. And shall we begin with a word of prayer? Father, we again thank you so much that we have this uh, Sabbath day that you have given to us, and we ask for your blessing upon our time together, upon this study. Uh, we thank you for each of those who are listening or watching and pray for your blessing upon them. And again, Father, we are so grateful that we have your word to turn to as the patience and comfort of the scriptures. And we ask these things with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. This is going to be part 24 of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Today's date is June 23rd. 2019. And as I mentioned last Sunday, today we're going to take a look at Hebrews 10.20. And we want to examine this particular verse, which I think is a fitting conclusion to the end of this series. And I'll read that verse, Hebrews 10.20, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. Now, I also want to mention that this is by no means exhaustive in terms of this particular study on the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, even though this will be part number 24, because God in his mercy undoubtedly has other precious gems having to do with this particular topic uh, in other places in Scripture that we still need to discover. But for right now, we're going to focus on this particular verse. Now, the first phrase is made up of three words, by a new and living way. Uh, by a new is Strong's number 4372, living is 2198, and way is 3598. Let's start with this first term, buy a new, uh, 4372. It's the Greek word prosphatos, and it's only found here in Hebrews 10.20, and it's made up of two words because it's a compound word. The first one is pro, like our English word, 4253 is a Strong's number, and the main word is Fazo 4969. And this word is actually very relevant to our discussion of the Lamb slain because it's primarily rendered as slay eight times out of a total of ten times that Sfazo 4969 is found in the New Testament. There are also a couple of other ways in which it is translated. One is kill, and the other is wound. Amazingly, even though we shouldn't be amazed, but uh, it is surprising that four of these references of this main word, Sfazo 4969, are found in connection with the lamb slain in the book of Revelation. And we'll look at Revelation 5, to begin with, Revelation 5, verses 6, 9, and 12. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne, and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, 
having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. As it had been slain, is this word sphazo, 4963, the main word in this Greek word by a new that we find here in Hebrews 10.20. Let's go to verse 9 of Hebrews 5. And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Once again, thou wast slain, is Faso 49.69. And then we'll look at one other verse here in Revelation 5, verse 12. Saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Again, that was slain, is this word sfazo. We'll also look at Revelation 13, 8. Next, Revelation 13, 8. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And here it's translated slain. Now, Based on the foregoing information, this term, by anew, in Hebrews 10.20, should have been translated as before slain, because evidently it has nothing to do with the word new, since God could have very easily used a term such as kainos, uh, Strong's number 2537, or one of its derivatives as its one of the, the predominant words for new in the New Testament, if that was his intention on telling us that this is something new. But that's not the case. Uh, however, we can certainly understand why the translators would have had difficulties with the idea of before slain. In spite of Revelation 13.8, which I'm sure they were aware of, but God had not opened their eyes uh, to this relatively new truth that we understand. And so their focus would have been on the cross in 33 AD, like so many still insist today. Furthermore, when we read Hebrews 10, 19 through 20, incorporating the words before slain, it fits the context since it refers to the blood, which is really the life of Jesus, which precedes the expression before slain. And then it's followed by the term living. And so we have God underscoring Christ's death, but also his resurrection. He is alive forevermore. And of course, this took place at the foundation of the world, uh, as we have been examining in, in these past 24 uh, studies. So I'll go ahead and read verses 19 and 20 again of Hebrews 10. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new, or let's say, 
before slain and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. When we think about how God has hidden this monumental truth that's encapsulated within this little word, prosphetos, and only found here in Hebrews 10.20, we recall a passage like Matthew 13.35 and marvel at God's mercy and goodness uh, to his elect in feeding them so bountifully from his generous hand uh, during these days that we're living in. Matthew 13, 35. I'll start with verse 34. All these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. The next word that we want to turn to in Hebrews 10.20 is the word living. Uh, This is Strong's number 2198, Zao, which uh, is contrasted with some form of dying. And we recognize that Death and resurrection is one of the greatest themes that runs all throughout uh, Scripture. However, when we're discussing, or when we were discussing the death of the testator a few studies ago, we examined this word, which is also found in Hebrews 9.17. Let's go there, Hebrews 9.17, which I'm sure you'll recall. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. That's our word, Zao 2198. And of course, we learned that Christ is the testator of the will. And all of the elect are named in that will. But that will could not have gone into effect unless the testator died first. And that's why we know that it had to have taken place at the foundation of the world so that somebody like Abel could have been saved right at the beginning of of the Bible. And, And that's exactly what did take place. Christ atoned for the sins of his elect. He had to become sin. He had to die. He had to be annihilated. And of course, he rose from the dead at the very foundation of the world. Now, uh, that said, let's uh, then go on to the next word, since I don't want to repeat what we uh, discussed uh, when we were talking about this word living in uh, Hebrews 9.17. Back to uh, Hebrews 10.20, and the word is way. By a new and living, or before slain and living way. And we, of course, are familiar with this term. There's a very notable passage, John 14, 6, which will be familiar to many, having to do with the Lord Jesus, spoken of as the way. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Uh, This is the word hodos, 
uh, Strong's number 3598. We also find it, for example, uh, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Of course, this is speaking about salvation during the day of salvation, which lasted 13,023 years, an incredibly long, long period of time in which God was extending his mercy to all of his elect as he saved each one in their successive lifetimes, in their particular generation. Also, if we go to Luke 179, we find this word there as well, Luke 179, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ is our peace. He is the one that during the day of salvation gave his peace, gave his salvation to uh, each of his elect for whom he had previously atoned for their sins at the foundation of the world. Uh, One last passage we'll go to, and this is Uh, Revelation 15, verse 3. Uh, This is that uh, beautiful song of Moses. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. And of course, the work of that God has in view is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ at the foundation of the world. That is the basis for the salvation of each of the elect. It's all predicated on what Christ had done. It has nothing to do with anything that we bring to the table. It's all the work of God, all the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, and hence, He gets all of the glory, all of the honor, all of the praise, all of the worship, all of the thanksgiving, because he is the one that has initiated and executed everything. We are simply the unworthy recipients of this unspeakable gift that we call salvation. Now, the next term, let's go back to Hebrews 10.20. We read there, he hath consecrated. Uh, This is Strong's number 1457, and it only emerges again in Hebrews 918. Hebrews 918, and there it's uh, translated as was dedicated. And this is following the verse that I read earlier having to do with the testator. But I'll I'll read uh, verses... Uh, 15 through 18, just to get the context. 
And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. And this is our word, consecrated. He hath consecrated, Strong's number 1457. And we recognize that Hebrews 9, among other things, is speaking about the Lord Jesus as the high priest of all of God's elect, as the testator, and also the nature of his unique sacrifice that he offered himself once at the foundation of the world. And that was one of the first points that we concluded uh, in this series, and that is that the atonement took place once. It was only once that Christ was bearing sin. It was not in 33 AD. That was a demonstration, a tableau of what had occurred at the foundation of the world. And that's a very, very important point. Now, the root word for this word he hath consecrated, which is echinizo, uh, is, and echinizo is this word he hath consecrated. It's a Greek verb, but its root word is echinia, uh, which is 1456. It's a Greek noun, and it only surfaces in John 1022. So let's go there, John 10:22, and here it's uh, the feast of dedication, John 10:22, and it was at Jerusalem the feast of the dedication, and it was winter, and this had to do with the dedication of the altar as well as the feast of tabernacles or booths, which you might recall Mr. Camping carefully pointed out that the Feast of Tabernacles really is the Feast of the Bible. And both of these feasts were celebrated simultaneously, for example, when Solomon's Temple was completed in the seventh month, the, the dedication of the altar and also the Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, we read about this if we go to Second Chronicles 5, 1 to 3. So let's go there, Second Chronicles 5, 1 to 3. Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of Jehovah was finished. And Solomon brought in all the things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, and the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel unto Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the covenant of Jehovah out of the city of David, which is Zion, 
Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king in the feast, which was in the seventh month. We can also go to chapter 7 of Second Chronicles, verses 9 through 10. And in the eighth day they made a solemn assembly, for they kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. And on the three and twentieth day of the seventh month, he sent the people away into their tents, glad and merry in heart, for the goodness that Jehovah had showed unto David and to Solomon and to Israel his people. Now, we want to uh, keep that in mind, but, well, actually, there is one other verse that we can look look at. It's a Leviticus 23, 34, and 39 that speaks about these feasts. Leviticus 23, 34, and 39. Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days unto Jehovah. Then verse 39, Also in the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when ye have gathered in the fruit of the land, ye shall keep a feast unto Jehovah seven days. On the first day shall be a Sabbath, and on the eighth day shall be a Sabbath. Well, with that in mind, let's go back to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, and we want to take a look at verses 3, uh, 7 through 8, 11, 14 through 18, and 24 to 26 and 28. And we're going to find here the same word for veil as well as the expression that is to say, which we find in Hebrews 10.20, and it's also in Hebrews 9.3 and 9.11. So let's go to Hebrews 9.3. And after the second veil, this is 26.65. This is the same term veil that we find in Hebrews 1020. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. This would be the holy of holies. Verse 7, but unto the second, this is speaking about the uh, holy of holies again, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Now, let's go to verses 14 to 18. How much more shall the blood of Christ, or the life of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, 
they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated, that's our word, 1457, or consecrated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. Now we'll go to verse, verse, uh, 20, verses 24 to 26 and then 28. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us, nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That would have been the demonstration in 33 A.D., so then Christ, excuse me, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, that was at the foundation of the world, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Now, let me, let me go ahead and read Hebrews 10.20 again. By a new or before slain and living way, which he hath consecrated for us, through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. So we want to take a look at these two terms, through the veil. Uh, through is Adia 1223, the veil, as I mentioned before, Akatapatasma 2665. Uh, we've already seen that this word veil, 2665, appears in Hebrews 9.3, as I mentioned earlier. But it also emerges in the following four passages, three of which are set in the context of the cross in 33 AD. And as I mentioned, this is because it's a demonstration. 33 AD is a tableau of what took place at the foundation of the world. Uh, in each case, uh, this word, the veil, is rendered as such, uh, except in Hebrews 9, 3, where it's just the word veil. So let's go first to Matthew 27, 51. Matthew 27, 51. We read there, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Similarly, if we go to Mark 15:38, we find the, the parallel passage there. Mark 15, verse 38. 
And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Also, Luke 23, 45, Luke 23, 45. Here we are given additional information uh, surrounding the, the demonstration. Luke 23, 45. And the sun was darkened and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And the idea of the sun being darkened reminds us of Matthew 24, 29, which was the start of the day of judgment. The sun is darkened. The sun represents Christ. The moon represents the word of God. The stars represent believers. The celestial bodies figured here, not, not literally, but figuratively, are no longer giving their light. The Word of God is no longer giving its light. The believers are no longer shining the light of the gospel as they did prior to May 21, 2011, when the Great Commission was to go out and reach the nations of the elect. Now we have a new commission in the Day of Judgment, and what is that? That is to tell the world that we are in the Day of Judgment and to feed God's sheep with the Word of God. Now, one last reference that we can go to is in Hebrews 6, 19. Hebrews 6, 19. Here we read, uh, I'll read verse 22. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And of course, we looked at this when we were discussing Melchizedek. And it's very significant that in the Bible you have seven passages. Uh, one in the Old Testament and I believe six in the New Testament that speak about Christ being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, because he is Melchizedek. Now, we want to move on then back to Hebrews 10.20. The, the next uh, term in this verse is through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Uh, that is to say is uh, like a figure of speech, 51.23, because it's linking the veil of the temple, which was torn from top to bottom, rent in twain, with his flesh, with Christ's flesh. And this is one of the reasons why we wanted to take a closer look at this passage, because it's because of this association that the Bible is linking the veil of the temple, which was ripped in half, with Christ's flesh. And so we wonder when or how this could have taken place because we don't read anywhere in the gospel accounts that Christ's body was somehow torn in half because that is what is in view while on the cross. So let's consider some illustrations of how God uses this term, that is to say, which serves to illustrate the following. It can either interpret something or it can clarify its meaning. 
Uh, for example, let's go to Matthew 27:46. Matthew 27:46. In about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani?" That is to say, that's our word, 51:23. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here, God is interpreting that those Aramaic words so that we can get a clear understanding of them. We can also go to Hebrews 9.11. Hebrews 9.11. But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, Here again, we find that God is clarifying what he means by not made with hands. In other words, this has nothing to do with human effort that went into building a physical temple or a physical tabernacle. Also, uh, let's go one other place. Uh, 1 Peter 3.20. Uh, I'll back up to verse 18. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened or made alive by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, were saved by water. So again, he is clarifying that the few on the ark are actually eight people. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Now, let's go to the uh, last couple of words in this passage in Hebrews 10.20. Let's go back there. His flesh. By a new and living way or before slain and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Let's see how God uses these two words, his flesh. If we go back to Acts 2.31, and this is a passage that we spent some time on in some of our earlier studies uh, in this series. He seen this before, speaking of David, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell or in the grave, neither his flesh did see corruption. And Uh, Of course, we recognize that this had to have taken place in 33 AD because it was at that time that his body did not experience corruption. It did not experience decay when he was in the tomb. This was normally and is always the case when someone dies immediately that corruption starts taking place. We can think about Lazarus. He was in the tomb four days. Like his sister said, his body is stinking. This was not the case. 
uh, with the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason this was not the case is because he was not bearing sin. If you recall in our study of Jonah 2, we covered this word in the Hebrew, corruption, in Jonah 2. And that word has to do with not only defilement, but literally it has to do with uh, extermination. It has to do with annihilation. This is the penalty for sin. The wages of sin is death. It's not that just somebody dies and that's the end of it. Eventually, they are going to be completely annihilated on the very last day. We can also go to Ephesians 2.15, uh, where we find these two words, uh, his flesh, mentioned together. Ephesians 2.15. Uh, I'll back up to verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us having abolished in his flesh the enmity or hatred, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And here we again recognize that the penalty for transgressing the law or the commandments, because the law are all the commandments of God, the entire Bible. If you have broken one law, it's as if you have broken every other law, according to James 2.10. And there's a penalty associated with that. And that penalty is death and annihilation. And that's what Christ experienced at the foundation of the world. Now, let's we'll, we'll look at a couple other passages, and then we'll have to close for today. One is Colossians 1.22. Colossians 1.22. We read there. I'll start with verse 21. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. This would be all the elect. In the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. And one last passage, a beautiful passage, this is Ephesians 5.30, which speaks about the beautiful marriage relationship between Christ and his bride. Ephesians 5.30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And we're reminded of Genesis 2, 23 to 24, where Adam, under divine inspiration, is, is making the statement, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Uh, and this, of course, pictures Adam as representing Christ and the woman, Eve, representing the elect. And so it's, it's a beautiful portrait of this incredible marriage between the Lord Jesus Christ and his elect bride. Well, I think we're going to have to stop here today because I want to go more in depth uh, with this word flesh and how it relates to the veil in the Old Testament. We see more examples in the Old Testament than we do in the, in the New Testament. And so I want to just carefully take the time to do that and finish that up, Lord willing, uh, next week. 